Hello, Professor Sorum, Matt, Nathan. Hello. Thanks for being here, being part of this. I thought we'd just run through um, real quick. The three of us will introduce ourselves, say where we serve, and then Professor Sorum, if you'd give us a little bit of background about um, where you're at right now and what you're up to. I'll go first. I'm Kent Reeder. I'm pastor at Illumin Church in Seattle, Washington. I'm Nathan Lersh. I uh, am the pastor at Illumin Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Matt Rothy, I get to serve as the pastor at the Way Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm Alan Sorum. I am the uh, director of the Pastoral Studies Institute at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, which which means I'm the administrator for the non-traditional program at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, uh, focusing on uh, North American immigrants that want to become pastors, focusing on our work overseas with other um, confessional seminary and worker training programs in our fellowship. And I also get to teach the traditional classroom um, second semester uh, at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in Mequon. I get to teach uh, a New Testament class, a missiology class, and a pastoral leadership class. Um, this comes, I've been doing this since 2004. Uh, the first 21 years of my ministry, I was at uh, Garden Homes Lutheran Church in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the city of Milwaukee. Um, I grew up just about 20 minutes south of where Kent is now a pastor in Des Moines, uh, Washington. I, I know where Kent serves very well. I've Actually, done quite a bit of knocking on doors in your uh, in your neighborhood, Kent, and it was one of the hardest neighborhoods I ever did door knocking in. So, there you go. It hasn't changed. Yeah, um, we all have personal connections with you because um, we all had you as a teacher um, in our time at the seminary, um, and I personally. Um, not only had you as a professor, but sort of got to know the legend of Professor Sorum because I served as the maintenance person at Garden Homes Lutheran Church um, while I was a seminary student. Um, and so, like, everybody knew who you were, and you'd brought a lot of those people um, who were connected to the school or to the church into the school or to the church. So I would go and I would plow snow in the morning and I would hear people talk about you and then I would go have you in class um, almost immediately after. And I would not be the best student because I had been plowing snow since 3.30 in the morning. But um, I got to know the legend that way. And then, you know, over the course of my time um, at the seminary, um, got to do a little bit of canvassing with you. Um, and experience some of like just what it was that that you brought as a sort of mission zeal and fervor and eagerness um, that was just a really interesting and, and sort of um, thing that made a strong impression on me um, during those years Other got stories? To, yeah I got to actually have you in class for the three you teach uh, I, I served as a pastoral uh, like assistant at garden homes during my time there so got to know that context uh, of ministry in that community as well. Uh, but here, here's a fun connection. Um, during my first year at the seminary, um, was enjoying many aspects of it, but wasn't quite convinced that, uh, you know what, I should be here and be a pastor. And during the long winter months, that got especially, um, yeah, like tough to wrestle with. And on one particular afternoon, you invited me to go to, I believe, uh, Taekwondo or Jiu Jitsu with you and uh, spent the winter months sparring with you uh, on Tuesday nights, you know, uh, during that. And that's a story for a different time. Uh, but just getting to hang with you in that context and talk about all things 
uh, life and ministry in general. I don't know if I can express what a <laughs> an encouragement that was for me for ministry. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for letting me pound on your face too, yeah. Matt. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I uh, my story is a little different. I've never been to Garden Homes, sadly, but um, I went on a trip <laughs> with you to Houston. I think it was January of 2012, and a bunch of other guys. Uh, yeah, Matt was on that trip too, and. Um, the, my my guy and I, who, who I was knocking on doors with, and then you you went around and did knocking on doors with different people. And so I was off and you were with him and it was time to go and I could not find you guys anywhere. And turns out you went into someone's house and were there for like 90 minutes, I think past when we were supposed to be done. And then the three of us went back to that person's house the next day for like three more hours. And it was an amazing conversation. Like the guy was somehow interested in studying to be a pastor or something like that. And it didn't work out, but um, that that's my story. I remember that very, very well. I, I continued to communicate with him over email for a, a long time after that. Wow. Great stories, man. Thank you for sharing those stories. That that's was fun really fun. Well, th there's a reason for them, um, especially for those who are part of the congregations that we currently serve at who are watching. Um, and the reason is that you are, even though these people don't know you, in some way like generation before, like a grandparent spiritually to, these, to the people who we are serving because of the ways that you have served us, as are many other professors and teachers and mentors that we have had um, in our careers. And that's um, a big part of what we're talking about in this Come to Jesus Moments series, which is um, the way that these relationships progress, the way that an individual matures in their faith and changes, and that the impact that that has on the broader kingdom of God um, over the course of that growth or that movement. And um, the first part, as you saw in the notes, um, that we're going to be talking about is that movement or that spiritual transformation from being like a supporter, like having big buy-in into Christianity, into the faith, into a church, into a congregation, a community, whatever you want to talk about, having a, a buy-in, a fervent buy-in into it, but then moving or maturing into a place where you are advocating for it, where you are a proponent of it. Um, and, you know, one part of your story that I don't know very well, um, and it's interesting because I hadn't really put two plus two together with your background here in Seattle, but um, you, you are broadly considered. Everybody hears, who knows you, hears your name, thinks about evangelism. That is, you are an evangelist. That is something that we equate you with. Um, and what I don't know is, where did that come from? What, where did that start? When did you feel that change from being like a kid who liked Jesus or a person who liked Jesus into someone who, who wanted to stand on a street corner and tell other people about who he is? Well, that's an incredibly awkward question that you're asking me, Kent. You ask you're welcome. Me an, <laughs> you ask me an awkward question, you've got to be ready for an awkward answer. Um, I, I was born in Montana, and my parents were active members of a little Norwegian Lutheran church in Shelby, Montana, that uh, was so Norwegian that it featured Lefse and Ludafisk dinners on a regular basis that I remember very vividly as a, as a boy up to the age of 10. And then my father was transferred, his, his job was transferred to Seattle. And in that process, like often happens with families, they kind of get like out of touch with their church going life. And uh, that's what happened to our family. And to make a long story short, 
one day my mother said, we're going back to church. And uh, we started visiting a variety of churches. And I remember her asking questions of pastors, like, do they hold to the doctrine of the Trinity? And, and to which I remember the responses being something like, uh, oh, nobody really believes that anymore. Finally, um, in our community, there was only one church left, and it happened to be a Wells church. And I did not understand why my parents were reluctant to go to that one last remaining Wells church. Um, they were a, a bit afraid of, you know, like escaping out of the church service safely. I'm, I was really curious about why they were resistant to visiting this last church. Uh, and I was interested because uh, as a 16-year-old, I probably had your above average angst, existential torment on a daily basis. You know, you guys probably remember what it's like being 16 years old. I do. And uh, I was curious. And the visit at Des Moines, uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Des Moines, we say Des Moines, uh, uh, the pastor was uh, Bill Warnke, and you don't know him. Uh, he's in heaven, uh, passed away a long time ago, but he stood up in that pulpit and he preached the daylights out of the gospel. He blew me away because he was not ashamed of his zeal and passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just blew me away. Um, uh, his presentation was interesting and it was deep. Uh, like I said, I was a struggling 16-year-old, and just to see his psychic, spiritual, emotional masculinity intrigued me, because I was trying to figure that stuff out on my own at that time. So uh, I kind of was a, a little ahead of my parents. I kind of got over fear of uh, not liking Boy Scouts sooner than my parents got over that. So I started attending his uh, Bible information class, and I said to my mom and dad, I said, I'm staying here. I, I, I just like this stuff. And uh, Pastor Warnke got me reading the Bible on my own. He got me uh, excited about uh, his relationship with Jesus, and that got me going on a relationship with him, and then that got me going on a relationship with Jesus. And I, I just started inviting my friends who were going through the same 16-year-old angst and trauma I was. I just said, hey, you got to come to church with me. And uh, every, every person that came to church with me was, they were received with that same pastoral warmth. They became the object of his attention, like I was the object of his attention. And and it was that relationship, that, that energy that came from the relationship that was spontaneous with my becoming a Wells member. And frankly, um, I still got that, that energy that comes from relationships. I'm still delighted every single day of my life that um, I accidentally, contrary to my parents' best interests, uh, got into a Wells church and it changed my life. And here we are talking about it today and talking about my grandchildren, which is one of my favorite conversations. You know, you used, you described it as a very spontaneous thing. Like this happened. Like I came, saw this, uh, this man talking to me about Jesus in such a way where there was no shame. It was, it was very much connecting to me as a 16 year old. And so that was, that was it. Like I then immediately moved towards, 
inviting my friends. And uh, the three of us had a conversation the other day about you just pour through the Gospels and you see that happening. When Jesus or someone tells someone the Gospel, it's natural. Um, but I'm sure there's people listening to this right now going, it's not natural. In fact, it's unnatural for me to go and talk to somebody about my faith. Um, I, I don't feel that energy. I love Jesus. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know. How would you as a pastor or, you know, just a friend encourage someone who, who believes that, you know, sharing my faith, that, that's not coming naturally. It's, it's not really my thing for some reason. Well, I think all four of us have a deeply personal answer to that question. Mine is, um, show me a crisis that I can't handle on my own. Show me that I am desperately uh, ill-equipped to deal with the challenge facing me in the eyes. I could fail. I could die. Uh, I could be humiliated beyond the point of repair. Uh, I, I really need help. Uh, I was blessed to be in that 16-year-old fragile bubble of a world where uh, one of my classmates' unkind words would shake me to the very foundation of my being. Uh, I had other bigger questions, uh, which to me uh, were really big questions. And I, I, I didn't have the answer to myself. I, I, in and of myself, I felt weak. I felt empty. I felt uh, like there's got to be something more to this life thing. Remember that Seattle is a very, very secular place. And I was raised in that mindset. Um, I was raised with the mindset of uh, evolution and no accountability to an ultimate uh, higher being that that we were like all just like a bump above bug and and that just like grated against my soul I, I even though I couldn't articulate the faith of my my childhood being a young kid I, I still think there was a, a bit of a remnant there where I'd resist the constant message in my public school education that I was just like a, a, an advanced single-celled amoeba uh, with long hair and, uh, uh, and a Pacific Northwest attitude. So I think that's kind of a long way to answer your question, Matt. Let, let me tighten up my presentation a little bit. If, if you don't feel a deep and personal need for Jesus, he's just not very exciting. And I, I guess that's why I've always really enjoyed the ministry contexts that the Lord has been so kind to put me in a, a place where there's trauma, a place where there's need, uh, a place where I don't have to make a case for God. Uh, I really like talking to people who don't have a leg to stand on. They're, they're desperate. And uh, that's kind of where I was. And, and that's in a nutshell why um, I, I am to this day still excited about talking to people about Jesus. I don't know. Does that make sense? That makes that makes plenty of sense. Let me follow up. What uh, the the trauma aspect, the the um, crisis aspect, especially re resonates now. You know, as this is be being talked about during a time where we're all at home during the coronavirus outbreak. Um, under normal circumstances, uh, I will say, like maybe even rewind two months, three months ago, like life's pretty comfortable. Um, you know, for a lot of people. And uh, I think maybe that is the uh, 
like the great evil, right? That, uh, you know, Satan gets us to feel is that we are just playing comfortable with life as it is. And therefore there's no need for me to deepen my roots in God's, God's word and his uh, limitless well of grace, nor there's nothing pushing me to go share it with my neighbor because he's comfortable too. I, I really think you're right, and I'm I'm not suggesting, and I know you don't believe that you have to be starving to death or have malaria in order to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you don't believe that. Uh, the, our challenge in this very comfortable North America, or once was and hope again soon will be comfortable North America environment, is to learn how to make people psychically, existentially uncomfortable. So that we can create in them that 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 interest to know Jesus as a very personal, loving, tender rescuer. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing you say, or I think I'm hearing that part, part one of the tools by which you get them, you help people see that need, is empathy. Just a, a deep, we would even call it pastoral, like you know, compassionate um, empathy towards people that is truly interested in them. Um, you know, Nathan, you told the story earlier about um, Professor Storm spending like 90 minutes with somebody in their house. That happened when I went canvassing with you. Um, you found a woman who was, she's carrying some groceries and you talked to her for like more than more than an hour um, because, and by the, by like minute 21, she was talking about like deep, problems and struggles and hurts that she was going through in her life. Um, and we were all just like frantic because we did not understand how you got her there, but it was, you, you, you cared. Um, and, and not just cared in that moment, but you know, with this guy that Nathan talked about, you emailed with him for a long time after and you, you were, you were diving into this sort of relationship. So this empathy helps you uncover the need. And when you uncover the need, then you can uncover the solution, which is, you know, a relationship with Christ. Um, and once that has happened in the heart of a person, then perhaps they start to see more easily how they can help other people. Uh, I really appreciate what you say, Kent. Um, somebody that doesn't know you or you plural, you three or me, might hear you talk and say, oh, empathy is your tactic. Um, that's, your, that's your trick up your sleeve. And every human being on the planet can sniff out fake empathy. I mean, ask any child seven years old um, what the adults in his or her life think of him or her, and you'll get a very articulate and immediate answer. We, we can't fake empathy. And I think what we say to our members is, you know, open yourself to a relationship with anybody. Don't, don't deny yourself the rich blessing and benefit of a relationship with a Muslim, with a Hindu, with a poor person, with a person from a different race, with a rich person. Just open your heart to, be, to receive this person. And, and when any human being, and I'll say any because I've asked a thousand people if I can tell them about Jesus and I only had one person say no to me and that was because she was holding groceries but it was raining Kent and it was the addition of rain on her holding groceries with her two dogs and three kids behind her she said but she was the only person that ever said no because 
Um, if our people understand that we just being ourselves, being open, be who we are, and let this person be completely themselves, comfortable with who they are, willing to share who they are with me. I mean, it takes approximately 47 seconds, maybe a minute and a half in arduous circumstances to develop a relationship with two, between two people who agree to experiment with being open to each other. And, and that's not a tactic. That's just, uh, that's just love. That's trust. That's, that's being open to uh, being used by God to drop us in a situation where somebody's incredibly lonely. And just about everybody you guys meet out there that's not a member of your church, they are lonely. And if you just give them the idea that you care about them, they'll be sharing every detail of their life with you in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Thank you. That's really good. Uh, especially the, like it resonated with me that that's not tactic. It's love. Um, I think it can be tempting even for the three of us, as we've been talking about this series and these sort of like phases or modes of spiritual maturation from attending to supporting, from supporting um, to advocating and from advocating to expanding. Like it can sound strategic. It can sound cold um, a little bit. And it's not like it's, it's, it's not meant to be, it's meant to be like the deepest, most, heartfelt um thing that it that it can possibly be you're yeah. identifying humanity kent yeah you, you, you've observed humans successful humans in relationships and i've identified the stages it works being a human works you we well i dare say every student who's had you knows you as the fearless guy who like you're going to talk to anybody and you're not afraid and maybe even not even nervous to go into literally any situation. And you, like you shared earlier, how that maybe started when you were 16. But did you have any, oh, I don't want to call it regression, but did you have any periods of time, whether it was at Garden Homes or any other time, where you found yourself shying away from sharing Jesus with people for any reason? Um, well, I've been in the ministry for almost 40 years, Nathan. So um, short answer is I have no idea because uh, I don't want to pretend that I can remember what happened 20 days ago, let alone 20 years ago. But, but here's, a, here's my best answer for you. Um, when I was a pastor and I would get crabby, my wife would say, go make an evangelism call because I would come back cheerful and happy and I'd come back a better human being than when I left. So she knew, she knew that uh, the more I retreat into my self pitiful 16 year old anxious tr traumatized self, the less likely I'm going to talk to anybody about anything as exciting as being a follower of Jesus. So I, I think that's a legitimate answer that, um, to the degree I'm into myself and my suffering and my self-pity, uh, I'm not going anywhere positive with the, with the gospel. Um, I, I think uh, I do have one time I remember not wanting to share my faith. Uh, uh, I was in an 11-hour layover in um, uh, someplace. I don't remember. It was an 11-hour layover. 
<clears throat> and I was just like bored out of my, just bored to tears. And there was a Muslim woman just sitting really not too far away from me. And uh, I, I really felt I should share my, try to share my faith with her. But I, I, I remember thinking, I don't want to share with my, my faith with her because she and her kind are unsettling a lot of friends of, that I have and making life dangerous for a lot of people I know. And I, I was angry at her and I was actually hating her from a distance. And then I caught myself hating her and I thought, you know, the irony is I just left some country that assigned the task of talking about evangelism. And here I sit in this, the safety and security and warmth of this coffee shop, not wanting to talk to this woman about Jesus. So I said a quick prayer, ask Jesus, forgive me, give me some words here. And I said across the table to the young woman, I said, that's a very pretty scarf you have on your head. Is that religious or is it just your personal style thing? She was obviously a student and she spoke very good English and she's also a faithful Muslim. And she then, she dropped her, her reading and her eyeglasses and she just opened up and started telling me about uh, the joys of being a Muslim. And uh, it provided a fantastic opportunity to, uh, to be a witness to her. And, you know, you probably forgot your question. It was a while back, Nathan. But uh, again, you know, when, when I'm not in touch with how I'm relating to other human beings, if there's hatred or barriers or animosity or just creepy sin in my heart, um, what, what better barrier is there between me and another human being in terms of talking to them about Jesus? I, I hope those are some, that, that's my answer to your question, Nathan. Thanks for that. Thank you. Maybe one, like maybe just another angle to ask through um, to approach what you've been been saying already. But um, you, you've talked about your wife when you were feeling crabby or regressing into your sixteen-year-old self, encouraging you to go on an evangelism call, and that, that that would that would change the way you were feeling about things. Um, can you talk to the way that um, you know pushing yourself? to do those things that maybe aren't the most natural, right? Like it is more natural to try to just be like hunker down. I'm going to watch 40 hours of Netflix instead um, of go out and do something or whatever um, people would be tempted to do to self-therapize. Um, how, how that then changes the way, like approaching other people in this way, in an evangelistic way, then changes the way that you turn around and, and personally approach Jesus or approach God, how it, uh, uh, the interplay with your relationship and the way you focus on it with other humans, then has effect on you, you and, and your Lord's connection. Can I choose any one of the 16 questions you just asked me, Kent? You may. Thank yes. you. This is the one I want to answer. Uh, I hope it's one you actually asked, but I, uh, my answer to your question is uh, what really helps me is let's talk about my wife. If we're in a restaurant, um, not a fancy restaurant, not a date night, but we're just like we're sitting up to the uh, to the cafe counter, and we it's a slow slow meal, slow time in the restaurant, and we start chatting up the uh, the guy that's been flipping our eggs, 
or the woman that's bringing the coffee, we start chatting her up and I also feel my wife start tapping my toe, which means, you know, shouldn't you start your conversation with this person about Jesus? It's about time you do that now. Or uh, uh, if, if a worker will come to the house, like a plumber or electrician or a cable buy is coming to our house, uh, she'll, she'll extend hospitality where the next thing you know, this poor worker is getting coffee and biscuits for my wife so we can start a conversation. So uh, what I'm suggesting with that story is there, there's the blessing of being Christians together with somebody. I remember a uh, district convention, Matt, in North the North Atlantic district where we were talking about a, a, a missional manifesto and there were a bunch of you young guys sitting at the table. And I just uh, introduced to you the idea that you young guys could support each other, could help each other to, to get more um, aggressive with your witness to the world. And I saw in your little group, uh, a, a real energizing uh, yeah, this is a cool thing. Let's be brothers together. Let's try to figure this out together. I, I think the whole accountability thing, Kent, is where we can be Christians together and and not be a bad representation of what Christianity could be to the world, but let's work, let's help each other be the best thing together that our witness could be to the world, and let's intentionalize it. Let's be strategic about that. Well, in, I mean, you're talking about your relationship with your wife and that accountability uh, happening. Uh, as you're describing that, I'm thinking that's happening right here with this group of four people over a Zoom call. You reference a conversation and a conference that we had where I, I know those pastors who are at that table and we do still encourage one another with that and how that happens. And you need that. We're talking about intentionalizing relationships with those not of uh, maybe the same faith for the sake of the gospel, but how about with one another for the sake of the gospel? Yeah, I, I just, I, I'll ask this too, and it just maybe to point it out, if anything, but can you speak on this? Because one of the themes that I've picked up from you and that I've, I've heard in our short conversation here is just your, your impetus and motivation for sharing your faith and whether, you know, you're all about, you're bent in on yourself and your wife tells you to make an evangelism call. Uh, one thing that I picked up from you, um, you know, getting to you know, be your student is you were open about your devotional life. And it's uh, during the times where that's not effective, you know, to Nate's question that he asked before, can you describe times where, yeah, it wasn't happening. It was always those times. And you said like when that was regular, there was no like fear. There was no shame. Uh, just how, how important is that? Your, your time with God's word uh, to your evangelism life. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you don't talk about. <clears throat> it's one of those things that you can't put your finger on. <clears throat> it's just, if, if it's what am I thinking about right now? And we, you have to decide what you're going to think about. Are you going to think about something light or are you going to think about something dark? Because nobody can think about light and dark together at the same time, especially if you're a guy. Sorry, we don't multitask. We, you can think about one thing. <clears throat> and so if I am just immersed into a paragraph or a chapter or um, um, an aggressive reading plan, that's what I'm thinking about. 
Uh, I'm asking myself questions that the Spirit has given me to ask by reading that specific text. I'm applying challenges to myself that the Spirit has given me from that specific text. I'm applying comfort to myself that the Spirit has given me from that specific text. And that's what I'm thinking about. And that's what, uh, you know, out of the fullness of your heart, your mouth speaks. So if you're just like mainlining light into your heart, then by and large, it's mostly light what's going to come out of your mouth, right? But when we separate ourselves from that, the the greatest danger, and you guys uh, heard You've heard me say this before, and I'll just take a moment to remind you that I'll, I'll say it to you again, that when we get away from our identity, when we get away from the word that feeds that identity, then we start attaching identity to something different than our relationship with Jesus. We attach it to our, our, our vocation, or our career, being a pastor. And so the danger with that is like if, if what defines me as being a pastor, then um, I make compromises. I'm a chameleon. I'm, I'm, I'm this pastor in front of this group of people, and I'm this pastor in front of that group of people, and that means I'm this guy in front of this group of people, and now I've lost touch with who I am, and um, that's confusing. Uh, so just to, to the degree I'm just thinking about the stuff the Holy Spirit gives me to think about, I'm probably going to be a healthier, happier, more let's talk about Jesus kind of guy. But if I let that slip out and my head's full of that, that uh, selfish 16-year-old that is afraid that the world is going to come crashing down around his shoulders, well, guess what I'm thinking about? 